Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture, Chapter 13, Gender and Sexuality, by Alison Glazebrook. In a comical scene in Aristophanes' Lysistrata, a play in which wives go on a sex strike in an attempt to end the Peloponnesian War, the title character enters into debate with the magistrate, but the magistrate refuses to listen. Lysistrata, if you're willing to hear us out and keep quiet like we used to do, we could amend your ways. Magistrate, you advise us. Indeed, you talk nonsense, and I at least refuse to listen. Lysistrata, be quiet. Magistrate, I be silent for you, accursed woman. When you wear this veil, I die first. Lysistrata, but if this is in your way, you can have it. Wrap it around your head, and now be silent. Old woman, you can also have this little wool basket. Lysistrata, and next you can carefully prepare the wool for spinning while munching on some beans. War will be our business. This simple exchange is comic in its reversal of roles, but it highlights some important concepts about gender in ancient Greece. Gender identity is attached to specific social, cultural, and economic roles. Here, woolworking is female labor, while warfare is the business of men. Concepts of gender also prescribe particular behaviors. Women are expected to be silent in the presence of men, who, in contrast, openly give voice to their opinions. Gender is also on display and marked on the body. Women cover their heads in public, but men do not. This chapter begins with a discussion of gender as a concept and how the ancient Greeks conceived of masculinity and femininity in their society. It then explores these ideas in relation to four key areas, sexuality, the body, the city, and ethnicity. Introduction In the second sex, Simone de Beauvoir claims one is not born woman, one becomes one. In other words, although your sex assigned at birth might be attached to an identity as male or female, being male or female is actually learned at home, in school, among peers, and via the media that surround us on a daily basis. Social construction, also cultural and more specifically gender construction, refers to this process of gendering, a process constructionists argue begins as soon as you leave the room. It is the opposite of essentialism, the concept that men and women have different natures innate to their biological identity. Statements like, men are by nature better leaders, and women are naturally suited to caregiving roles, reflect this type of thinking. While some theorists and scientists argue that biology does affect behavior and thus plays a role in gender development, these researchers still recognize that social interaction and culture are a significant factor in developing gender identity. A number of modern societies now speak of a gender spectrum, with some individuals identifying as women, for example, although being biologically male. Individuals thus place themselves somewhere on the spectrum between masculine and feminine and might identify as cisgender, transgender, non-binary, 
genderqueer, or two-spirited. Terms like gender roles, gender norms, and gender hierarchies encapsulate how gender is used to organize societies, historically placing female below male, but also how gender is evaluated and judged by others. Historians use gender theory to explain the roles of men and women through time and to examine how different cultures and societies define the concepts of masculinity and femininity and the impact of such concepts on social, cultural institutions and the lives of individuals. Gender studies, as the discipline is called, is an outgrowth of women's studies from the 1980s. As the historian Joan Scott first argued, To understand the roles of historical women fully, it is necessary to know the roles and privileges of their male counterparts. Gender studies thus differs from women's studies in that it focuses on multiple social categories, not just women. It explores questions like, how do gender roles affect one's relationship with the law or the economy? How do ideas about gender restrict one's movements? How does gender identity determine access to privileges? What is the connection between social status and gender identity? To date, scholarship on ancient Greece has focused on women and female identity. But since the 1990s, there has been an increasing interest in the topic of masculinity in its own right. Since early on, gender studies has included discussions of sexuality. Foucault's work, The History of Sexuality, argues that sexuality is an extension of concepts of gender and thus, like gender, varies according to time and place. While classicists critique Foucault's limited focus on philosophical and medical texts, as well as his neglect of female desire and the sexuality of subaltern groups, his emphasis on discursive practices, how cultural meaning is produced and conveyed, remains central to approaches to ancient sexuality and gender. The Evidence When researching women, scholars cannot rely on traditional historical texts alone, since writers like Thucydides only rarely mention them. Instead, scholars use multiple types of evidence, epic, lyric, drama, history, oratory, and inscriptions. But this method presents challenges. In considering each type of text, it is important to note the specifics of each genre, the intended audience, and the performance context or in the case of inscriptions, their display setting. Oratorical texts, works associated with the law courts of Athens or the Athenian political assembly, are often considered the most reliable source, but their focus on persuasion should caution us against taking them too literally. A key limitation to the study of women and gender is the male authorship of the sources. Aside from the archaic poet Sappho, very little writing by Greek women survives. Our knowledge of women and the female is thus filtered through the lens of elite adult male citizens. We do not know the thoughts of women on their roles and the role of men in Greek society. This situation parallels that of the enslaved and non-elite more generally, and even Spartans, our knowledge of whom also relies on third parties. Material culture, including visual evidence, sometimes offers alternative perspectives since artisans, even though predominantly male, came from the lower classes. With archaeology, we can examine the items women and men used and consider the spaces in which they moved. Another limitation, however, is that each of us, as a product of a particular culture and time, risks imposing our own ideas and experiences of gender on the ancient evidence. 
When studying gender, it is thus necessary to check our own assumptions regularly and to employ a variety of evidence so as to identify underlying ideologies and be able to reconstruct as accurate a picture as possible of the lived experience. Many of the examples used in this chapter come from the ancient city of Athens during the classical period, since there exists a large enough body of material to allow for generalizations and some conclusions. Constructing Ancient Gender Despite the inclusion of non-binary deities like Dionysus and Athena in the Greek pantheon, the ancient Greeks did not generally recognize the spectrum. Thinking of man and woman as fixed categories and gender as a binary concept, as such, male and female were associated with polarized identities based on innate traits. Masculinity, for example, was associated with being active, self-controlled, rational, and dominant, while femininity was connected to being passive, lacking in self-control, irrational, and submissive. Female identity was considered inferior to male in all respects. A lack of control and irrationality also made femininity a potentially dangerous and destructive force. These associations dominated the literature and art of ancient Greece, especially Athens, and determined the roles of men and women within Greek society. Negative stereotypes of women as lazy, greedy, and obsessed with sex, such as those expressed in the 7th century BCE poem On Women by Simonides, highlight their inability to self-regulate and suggest women can only be controlled by external forces, like men and the institution of marriage. The same stereotypes are present in the comedies of the classical period Athenian playwright Aristophanes, who regularly portrays women as sex-crazed and drunkards. But note the more complex and sometimes positive portrayals of women of tragedy among his contemporaries, like Sophocles' Antigone, centering on a sister's devotion to her dead brothers, and Euripides' Alcistis, about a wife who agrees to die in place of her husband. And even the portrayal of a gender-fluid individual, the playwright Agathon in Aristophanes' Women at the Thesmophoria. While the character Ischomalacus in Xenophon's Ochimonochus is perhaps unique in that he claims that men and women have similar capacities for memory, concentration, and even moderation, he still subscribes to a rigid social organization based on gender. Men cannot perform women's work, and women cannot undertake the work of men. Such labor is directly connected to innate male and female qualities. Iskamachus argues that the male nature is suited to outdoor tasks because the god gave men strength for physical work and endurance against the elements. He also provided the male nature with courage to enable men to protect the household against all threats. The female nature, in contrast, is better suited to indoor tasks because she is less able to endure hardship. Most importantly, the god made her more fearful to help in guarding the household wealth and gave her a greater portion of affection to help with raising children and even looking after enslaved workers who became ill. Their natures are thus complementary associated with different tasks and different spheres of influence. In this same section, Ischomachus specifically associates men with plowing, sowing, planting, and herding. He attaches women to storing and distributing food, to spinning and weaving, to production of clothing, and nursing the ill, performing a particular task thus connected to concepts of masculinity and femininity. Such gender divisions 
were not limited to the oikos. Since the Greeks perceived male identity as rational and self-controlled, men were the leaders and decision-makers of the state, in addition to being the head of households. Under Athenian democracy, all free adult citizen males had a vote as well as a right to speak in the political assembly. Women thought irrational and uncontrolled had no such public voice. Even at Sparta, where they had more independence, women were still not welcome at assemblies where decisions were made. Ideas about women's nature justified their subjection to men and meant they had less autonomy in Greek society. Women at Athens, for example, had a curios, a male guardian, who ensured they behaved appropriately and represented them in major economic transactions as well as the law courts. Given these limitations, scholars debate the extent to which women should be considered citizens. It is true that references to politis politides, the feminine form of of citizens and citizens, are rare, but the term aste of the astu, the city town, is commonly used to refer to Athenian women. After 451-450 BCE, Athenians referred to as astoi and aste were the only men and women who could produce legitimate children. In the archonship of Antidotus, Pericles put forward a proposal on account of the number of citizens, and the Athenians decreed that anyone who was not born from Astoi on both sides should not share in the rights of citizenship. This law, known as Pericles' Citizenship Law, recognized the status of Athenian women and suggests an important role for women in the polis. According to the orator Apollodorus, citizen women participated in civic institutions, which as in the case of male citizens, was indicated by the verb metachin, to share in. They held sacred offices, performed sacred rites, and shared in civic honors. Only Athenian women, the estate, could partake in certain religious festivals like the Thesmophoria, or serve as priestesses in civic cult. Women could also, like men, lose these privileges, suggesting that women were indeed considered citizens, and most scholars now acknowledge at least partial citizenship for Athenian women. But in effect, citizenship had different meanings and expectations for males and females in ancient society. Violating gender roles and exhibiting feminine traits of male, and vice versa, risked charges of gender deviancy, resulting in social displacement. While all mature citizen males might not conform to the category male, any such individuals were were considered problematic. As such, an individual's masculinity or femininity was subject to criticism. Males were at a greater risk of such scrutiny given the public nature of their roles in society. Whether at the symposium, the gymnasium, or speaking in the assembly and law courts, their gender was on display and they were expected to exhibit self-control. Self-control kept a man's appetites in check, helped him preserve his patrimony, and ensured he could make rational judgments about his household and about the city. In essence, it made him a good citizen. Since Greek warfare used citizen armies, all male citizens were expected to fight in any wars. Hence, the concept of Andrea, manly courage, also appears as a defining masculine trait. Women, in turn, were valued primarily as wives and mothers, making sexual virtue, their primary virtue. Any lapse in such qualities left men and women vulnerable to disdain and at worst jeopardized their social standing and even possibly their citizen status. 
Sexuality. Sexuality in ancient Greece is generally thought to differ radically from sexuality in modern societies. First, the ancient Greeks had no equivalent term to sexuality, a word encompassing the practices as well as the cultural meanings of sex. Second, the Greeks did not classify individuals based on sexual preference. They did not, for example, identify as homosexual, bisexual, asexual, or heterosexual. To highlight such differences, scholars have used pseudo-homosexuality, pederasty, homoeroticism, same-sex relations, male-female relations, ancient eroticism, and simply sexuality over homosexuality and heterosexuality, though less commonly, when talking about ancient sexuality. As Kenneth Dover argued, the Greeks instead conceived of sexuality in terms of an individual's role as active or passive. The ideal male, the full citizen, was the dominant partner and the penetrator of others, regardless of their sex. According to this model, the female, and also lesser males, was always the passive and penetrated partner. She was also passive in that, unlike men, she had no ability to control her sexual urges. According to the Hippocratics and Plato, a woman's womb, not her conscious state, drove her sexual appetite. Male-authored sources thus regularly represent women as having an excessive appetite for sex, making them untrustworthy and dangerous. Popular culture frequently presents Greek sexuality as less inhibited than its modern counterparts. But while the Greeks did not practice sexual abstinence or devote themselves to a life of chastity, believing intercourse to be a regular feature of bodily well-being, they did still place restrictions on sexual behavior. Such restrictions differed according to gender. While citizen males had sexual access to a wife, to the enslaved men and women of his household, to hired sex laborers, and for a time to citizen boys through the pederastic relationship, citizen women, in contrast, were only ever allowed sexual relations with a husband. Since the goal of marriage was procreation, and the inheritance pattern for Greece was normally patrilineal, there was much anxiety about female sexual loyalty. It was therefore expected that fathers and husbands kept the sexuality of their female kin contained and under control so that a stranger might not contaminate the familial bloodline. In ancient Athens, mokia, commonly translated as adultery, included sexual relations with another citizen's wife, but also another citizen's daughter or sister. It was a serious offense with harsh penalties for the male lover, including fines, corporal punishment, and even death. In such crimes, the male partner was criminally responsible and thought to corrupt the woman, who was viewed yet again as a passive partner. Nevertheless, if married, her husband still divorced her, sending her back to her kin without her dowry. She was further banned from womanly adornment and attending public festivals. The main social outlet and public role for Athenian women. If she ignored such prohibitions, any man could strip and beat her as long as he did not kill or permanently maim her. In this sense, such a woman lost her right to male protection as well as any rights and privilege she had as a woman in the city of Athens, suffering a kind of atimia, a loss of civic rights. The pederastic relationship was also strictly prescribed. Pederasty, or boy love, was between a young adult male the Erastes, the lover, and a prepubescent boy, the Eromenos, the beloved, and was practiced throughout Greece 
from at least the archaic period onwards. Although it likely started as an elite practice, it may have become more widespread by the time of the classical Athenian democracy. Much of what is known about the practice comes from the verses collected in the corpus attributed to Theogenes, dating between 640 and 479 BCE. Many of the poems are directed to a beloved called Cyrenus. While scholars disagree about the exact ages of each partner, the beloved was likely between 12 and 18 years of age, with the lover normally in his early 20s to 30s. In addition to this age difference, the relationship was thought to be hierarchical. Both black figure and reg figure vases present the Erastes as the sexually dominant partner courting the Eromenos with gifts. In encounters with the Erastes, the boy behaved much like a female was expected to, not being eager for attention, but exhibiting modesty and moderation. Such relationships regularly had the approval of the boy's father. While the bond was certainly sexual, the older Erastes also acted as a mentor for the boy, and his social status might benefit from the Eromenos, and by extension his family, by enlarging the social connections of the boy. James Davidson, however, rejects this model of pederasty, and argues instead for an age-equal relationship, but this view is not widely accepted. Still, a growing number of scholars now agree that there were a variety of homoerotic relationships, including peer-to-peer homosexuality and coexistence in ancient Greece. Acceptance of such relations as widespread challenges the current view of Greek sexuality as hierarchical and the requirement that the citizen male be the dominant and unpenetrated partner. Classical male writers only rarely consider same-sex relations between women. In Plato's Symposium, the playwright Aristophanes gives a speech on love that ends with a reference to sexual unions between men, between men and women, and between women. The specific comment on love between women is neutral in tone, but the passage makes it clear that the most valued relationship is that between two males. Scholars interpret the dearth of references in male-authored sources in two ways. Either such relations between women were not common, or men had no concern whether or not women had intimate relations with each other. For more information, we must move beyond Athens to Lesbos, the home of the archaic poet Sappho, late 7th to early 6th century BCE. She is an important source on feminine desire and female homoeroticism, since her poems focus on her love for women. She implores Aphrodite to help her in winning the desire of a new love interest and speaks of the physical pleasure shared with her female lover. Some argue that such relationships reflected the model of relations between men in which an adult lover had a youth as a beloved and provided mentorship to the youth, since Sappho was likely the elder partner in her relationship with a young girl prior to her marriage. Despite the age differential and mentoring, however, her liaisons differ from pederasty and that Sappho sought a relationship in which pleasure was shared and not focused on the older partner. Her writing thus hints that women may not have conceptualized a sexual relationship as having dominant and passive partners. The body. The body is an important locus for expressing and displaying identity, marking difference, and linking gender to other identities, such as social and economic status and ethnicity. Figure 13.3 on a red figure of Pyxis depicts a bride with her hemation, her cloak, pulled around her head and shoulders. 
Her clothed body resembles a lifeless statue with almost no movement suggested. While this image is particularly striking, the fact that women's bodies were regularly shown clothed when men's were depicted nature, naked reveals different cultural associations with each type of body. The tightly wrapped garment in this image appears to restrain her movement and present her as under control. The clothing, in effect, tames her and highlights women's inability, unlike citizen males, to rein in their bodies themselves, a fact supported in medical and philosophical writings. The Hippocratics, for example, believed the female body to be soft and porous, and as a result, it absorbed extra moisture from nourishment. Such moisture was only drained off through the menstrual cycle. The male body, in contrast, was hard and dense, making it more efficient since it did not build up an excess of moisture. Any buildup that might occur was burned off by their active lifestyles. Women, however, were not encouraged to be active since activity easily dried out the womb and led to health problems caused by the womb moving about the body in search of moisture. Ideas about male and female physiology reflected and justified Greek concepts of gender. It is likely that Greek citizen women wore veils when venturing out in public to fetch water or attend a festival or funeral. Visual evidence attests to short, shoulder-length veils, longer veils that cover the head and shoulders, and veils that were draped over the lower body and shoulders and easily lifted over the head as necessary. Some women may even have had veils to cover their faces. Such coverings became an important element of attire when girls reached menarche and were a requirement of dress as adults. They protected a woman from contact with non-kin males, kept her body free from the male gaze, and through their encasement signified her modesty or sexual virtue, the defining trait of citizen women, to all who encountered her. In contrast, Phaedra in Euripides' play Hippolytus uncovers her head as she moves on stage. The act unleashes her emotions and allows her to rave and hint at her shameful lust for her stepson, Hippolytus. Without the veil, she is no longer able to contain her desire. Even with the veil, however, the free woman had to exhibit appropriate emotional and behavioral responses in a particular situation. In encounters with men, she had to determine the appropriate use of her veil, whether or not it could hang freely or needed to be wrapped tightly around her body and face. When addressed or seen by a man, she must blush and avert her gaze. All of these habits identify her as a sophron and displayed her degree of sexual virtue. Women also use adornment and other means of bodily enhancement to control and project a particular image of themselves. Excavated pyxides, the small storage vessels from the classical period, have traces of cosmetics, attesting to women's augmentation of their appearance in real life. To add color, women use a plant substance known today as alkanet root for rouge. Women also use pismuthion, a lead carbonate, for the face and even the neck and arms to achieve a paler complexion and cover any spots or wrinkles. Pale complexions were an ideal of beauty going back to Homeric times and indicated a woman's virtue and social class since it indicated an indoor, sedentary lifestyle. Fa's images from the classical period emphasized beautification as an important feature of being female, with women at their toilet becoming the most common female scenes in attic red figure vase paintings. 
Women are shown bathing, arranging their hair, adorning themselves with jewels, dressing and gazing into mirrors. Mirrors along with sashes also hang from the walls in depictions of female spaces. Scholars debate whether all such scenes are nuptial, enforce female passivity as objects to be desired and admired, or hint at female sexuality, agency, and community. Too much concern with beauty and adornment, however, was seen as a negative trait and associated with luxury, duplicity, laziness, and a lack of virtue as far back as the archaic period. Hesiod described the adornment of the first woman only to show that her beautification hid an evil disposition, making her a trap for men. He calls her a Kalon Kakon, a beautiful evil. Simonides, with mere woman, is so concerned with her appearance that she neglects all housework. Such attitudes continue into the classical period. In Xenophon's Okonomicus, Isomachus disapproves of his wife's use of white powder, rouge, and platform shoes, and claims such behavior as trickery and purposefully deceptive. Elaborate displays of adornment aroused suspicion, hinted at a woman's duplicity, indicated sexual impropriety, and even or even status as a prostitute. While full female nudity is absent from Greek art, with the exception of particular genre scenes in Attic vase paintings and small Spartan bronzes, until the Hellenistic period, male figures were regularly depicted nude from the archaic period onwards. These bodies are not restrained by clothing. Archaic statues of Kuroi, nude male youths, are in mid-step. By the late archaic early classical period, Kuroi hurled the discus and lean on spears. Male nudity is also common in vase paintings in all kinds of scenes, from daily life to myth, including athletic competition, drinking parties, gymnasia, battle, and hunting scenes. Such nudity, often termed heroic, celebrated an ideal of masculinity with its emphasis on muscular bodies and athleticism, highlighting a freedom of movement. The male genitalia are conventionally undersized as a way to indicate self-restraint and modesty, qualities important in male citizens and youths. Such genitalia contrasts with the enlarged, commonly erect phalluses associated with satyrs and non-Greeks, characterized by their excessive appetites and lack of self-control in myth and literature. Small, non-erect phalluses are characteristic of hermenoi in scenes of pederastic courtship on pots, even when erastic brandish erections, and highlight the expectation of modesty in the case of the hermenos in particular. Other courtship scenes show such youths wrapped in their hemations, similar to the female figure discussed above, and emphasize sexual virtue and modesty. In daily life, male bodies were openly on display in athletic competitions and at the gymnasium and palestra, where boys and men exercised in the nude. A physically fit body reflected in kratea, self-control, indicating a routine of regular exercise and restraint in all appetites. A tanned body identified an active and engaged citizen who spent his time outdoors in the fields and in the civic space. The visibility of men's bodies invited scrutiny. Orators, for example, whether speaking in the law courts or the assembly, presented themselves with bodies of moderation and accused their opponents of excessive appetites. In a trial accusing Timarchus of being unfit to advise the demos, the orator Eschines, 4th century BCE, 
describes the statue of the archaic lawgiver Solon as standing erect with his arm buried in his cloak in the age-old characteristic way of addressing the people. He argues that the statue reflects the speaker's self-control in all respects of his life. He portrays Demarcus, in contrast, as throwing off his cloak when speaking in the assembly and leaping about half-undressed, revealing his body to be worn and abused by excess drink and indecent sexual behavior. According to Eskines, his body interferes with his ability to be a good citizen. He has reduced his family property to nothing and embezzled from the city. Such attacks aim to undermine the authority of a speaker by questioning his masculinity, which was dependent upon the exercise of self-control as much as social position. At the same time, they reveal the importance of the body and its performance to ideals of manhood and citizenship. The city. Male and female were also mapped into the urban landscape, creating a gendered topography. In both Greek literature and art, women are regularly associated with the domestic fear and indoor space, whereas men dominate the civic realm and outdoor space. Architecture and urban design of the classical period reinforce this view. The Greek house, for example, was built with a view to privacy and limited access by outsiders. It enabled men to keep female members of their household separate from strangers and women to maintain sophrosine while going about their daily tasks. Lysaeus' speech against Simon describes Simon's forced entry into their house of another man with whom he was in dispute. When Simon burst in, only the sister and nieces were at home. But Simon refused to leave. In fact, he is said to enter the women's quarters and to grill the women on where this enemy is. Even his companions considered his behavior reprehensible and helped to drive him out. The episode is meant to demonstrate Simon's bad character and his disregard for decency. It also highlights the spatial dimension of gender. The mention of a women's quarters suggests a specific area of the house for women and hints at the seclusion of women, at least elite women. In ancient Greece, Xenophon and Lycia both refer to women's quarters with the Greek household. In Okamonicus, the character Iskamakis refers to a locked door separating the male and female quarters for enslaved household members, the, andro- the Androitis and Gynacointis, respectively. Lycia, in turn, suggests that the Gynacointis was the upper portion of the house, since upon the birth of a son, the defendant Euphilatus moved the Gynacointis downstairs and allowed his wife to sleep there with a the child while he moved upstairs. The reversal in household arrangements suggests such quarters were not architecturally prescribed or even flexible in their incorporation of space. Archaeology supports this view since, as of yet, no gynecologist, the women's quarters, is visible in the archaeological features, and artifact assemblages suggest that female activities occurred almost everywhere in the house. Nevertheless, even if women were not secluded in the home, or even at home, as scholars now generally accept, the concept of a female space had, had significance and highlights the desire for separation of a citizen's women from other males. As James Davidson put, points out, the gynaconitis became important as a way to highlight when such gender divisions were violated, or appropriately upheld as the case may be, and when gender roles were at risk. The classical Greek house, however, commonly had an andron, 
the men's room, thus a more specific term than andronitis, typically recognizable in the archaeological record by its offset door. It was here that the symposium, a drinking party, literally drinking together, took place. These intimate gatherings of companions, male citizens drank wine, watched performances, played drinking games, recited verses, and discussed important topics of the day. Everyone was expected to drink, but getting drunk was seen as unmanly. Such drinking parties were where male citizens formed and maintained important socio-political alliances. While enslaved, freed, and foreign women might be present as entertainers, musicians and acrobats, and prostitutes, female kin did not attend such gatherings, and non-kin males were expected to avoid contact, even visual, with these other women. Hosts helped keep visitors separate from such female members of the household. Boys and youths could be present at symposia, adding to the erotic atmosphere of such gatherings. But the archaic poet Theogenes from the 6th century BCE also points to the banquet as a principal venue for their learning. The adult symposias provided them with models of acceptable conduct and exposed them to an intellectual culture grounded in discussion and poetry. The Andron was thus a semi-public space and frequently marked out as a masculine space where males bonded and displayed their masculinity. In contrast to citizen women, being out and about town was important to male citizen identity and fulfilling civic responsibilities. Citizen males convened in the many public spaces of the city, the Agora, the marketplace, the Pinks, where assembly was held, gymnasia, and palestrae. Although clearly defined locales, at least by the 5th century BCE, the spaces were open air and, unlike houses, their activities were exposed to view. These spaces were where the male citizen conducted his personal business, participated in the business of the democratic city, and did his athletic training. The Agora was the main marketplace, but also the location for important civic institutions, like the law courts and the council house. The Agora was also likely where the Athenian assembly met in the early part of the democracy, moving to the Pink's sometime in the early 5th century BCE. The Pinks was simply an open space, gathering space, with a bima, a speaker's platform, added in the 4th century BCE. It was here where citizens addressed their fellows in an assembly and exercised their right to vote, the important privileges of male citizens under the democracy. Male citizens, youths and boys, trained at the edge of the city in a gymnasia and palestrae, likely simply parkland with perhaps a stoa, but trees could also have provided shade. Such spaces were central to male socio-political culture and competition. In addition to getting themselves fit for competitive games and warfare, men admired each other's bodies as well as the bodies of youths and the boys for their beauty, strength, and athleticism. Such admiration might result in physical attraction and the formation of homoerotic relationships. Cities outside of Athens, like Corinth and Sparta, also included space for athletic training and the display of similar masculine values. While women were kept away from such spaces, even the Agora in the case of elite women, their participation in religion and funerary cults brought them through an or near such spaces on a regular basis. As Lisa Nevitt suggests, time and day and special occasions likely facilitated and dictated such movement, much like in the Greek household. Ethnicity. Gender relations and the actions of women also become important markers of differences when Greeks portray and evaluated non-Greeks. 
Herodotus, in his histories, for example, describes male and female roles in ancient Egypt as the opposite of Greek norms. He also frequently feminizes barbarian rulers. At the Battle of Thermopylae, for example, King Xerxes, the Persian king, expected an easy defeat, since his army far outnumbered the Spartans and their allies. But the Greeks were able to withstand multiple assaults by the Persian army, leading Herodotus to comment that although Xerxes' people were many, only a few were really men. His choice of words is telling. Anthropos is simply a generic term for human being, while Andres is the root of Andrea, manly courage. According to Herodotus, the Persians lacked essential masculine traits, making the Persians an inversion of the Greek male. Herodotus' representation of the Persians at the Battle of Salome also suggests a complete reversal of gender roles. Here, Xerxes watches the naval battle from a high cliff and observes Artemisia of Caria, one of his naval commanders, ramming and sinking his ship. He immediately exclaims, My men have become women, and my women men. Artemisia was extraordinary as a female leader of an allied city in command of a small fleet, and in fact, Herodotus even credits her with Andre. But her inclusion in the narrative has a specific purpose. Her story highlights the difference between being between Greeks and non-Greeks as akin to differences between male and female punctuated by strong portrayals of women. Herodotus included her account and those of other female barbarians to show how unlike non-Greeks are to Greeks and to feminize them. Such feminization appears to be a common motif in art and literature after 480 BCE. Aeschylus Persians produced in 472 BC also associates Persians with stereotypical feminine traits. The Persian queen mother is the main character of the play, with all fighting men notably absent. Xerxes embodies anandria, unmanliness, and is described as shrieking and lamenting in the manner of a woman as he watches the defeat of the Persians at Salome. He also tears his peploi. This term, also used for female garments, indicates the full-length dress of the Persians in contrast with the habit of Greek males who wore the shirt chiton. Herodotus and Aeschylus both represent Persians as soft and luxurious, lacking in self-control and even at times courage. They represent them as inferior to the Greeks in the same way that female was inferior to male in Greek thought. Herodotus also uses gender as a way to highlight ethnicity much closer to home. Spartans, while admired, are also discussed as if unfamiliar to other Greeks, since Herodotus outlines their customs for his Greek readers, like he does for Egyptians, Scythians, Medes, and so on. His narrative frequently stresses the independence of Spartan women. He records that, Argea, the daughter of Autusian, advised and manipulated the Spartan elite so that both her sons became kings. Stories about Gorgo, the wife and influential daughter of Clemens I and wife of Leonides I, also appear in his histories and hinted female involvement in the political sphere. Spartan women were seen to contrast in particular with Athenian women. In his Spartan constitution, Xenophon highlights how Spartan girls were better nourished than other Greek girls, and instead of doing wool work and remaining indoors, Athenian ideals, they exercised their bodies in the open just like men. During the Peloponnesian War, such societal differences were exploited. 
Euripides highlights the contrast in his representation of Spartan men and women in his play Andromache from circa 425 BCE. Hermione is overly lustful rather than modest and appears to dominate Menelaus, her father. Even in Euripides' Helen, produced near the end of the Peloponnesian War and presenting the Spartans as less foreign, Menelaus still appears helpless next to Helen, his Spartan wife. In this way, just like the Persians above, the paradigm of normal gender relations is inverted as a way to stress the Spartans' otherness. Summary. Gender was central to social identity and organization in archaic and classical Greece. The Athenians conceptualized male and female as polar opposites. They associated masculinity with being active, dominant, rational, and self-controlled, crafting femininity in contrast as passive, submissive, irrational, and lacking in self-control. These associations justified a social hierarchy based on gender in which male was superior to female in almost every way. Women were always subject to a male guardian, who could be their father, husband, or even brother, making women more similar to children than their male counterparts. As the rational and active ones, male citizens were the political leaders and policymakers. Female citizens' contributions focused on the production of children and running the household, as well as participation in religious ritual and cult. The perception that women lacked self-control made them dangerous and untrustworthy. It was thus part of the adult male's role to control the female members of his household. At the same time, gender for both sexes was always on display and open to scrutiny. Both sexes had to conform to particular gender norms. For citizen women, this meant avoiding contact with non-kin males and exhibiting modesty. Men had to show that they were in control of themselves, whether at the symposium or on the battlefield, as well as their womenfolk. Transgressions were open to ridicule and disdain, and might even lead to a loss of status. The study of gender is regularly paired with the study of sexuality, since sexuality is an extension of gender roles and an expression of gender. In ancient Greece, the male citizen was normally the active and dominant sexual partner. But we've also seen how some scholars have questioned this model of sexuality and how some same-sex relations in particular complicate such a model. Gender was also inscribed on the body, from physiology to adornment and deportment. The use of adornment, however, was one way for women to exert control over their bone bodies and express identities. When we considered gendered space, we saw how ideas about gender were frequently ideals that were not always attainable. This observation suggests that necessity and social status affected the performance of gender, Finally, gender as a concept also linked to other polarizations, such as Greek versus barbarian. The Greeks used ideas of femininity more generally to mark differences and marginalize others. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.